You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hey everyone, it's James Crepe with the Oregonian and Oregon Live bringing you the latest edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. We've been off for a while uh, for myriad reasons, won't bore you with all of them, but long and short of it was spring football was kind of unpredictable. Uh, we were hoping for a little bit more by way of access in the spring and uh, it was not really terribly conducive to uh, waxing poetic uh, about anything from an observation standpoint when there weren't very many observations to be had, uh, unfortunately, in the spring due to uh, uh, access and uh, to spring practice and the like. We'll certainly get more and more into uh, off-season football discussions for the Ducks, uh, our position breakdown series. That's already going on. So we will definitely uh, chime in now that spring practice is wrapped up. But with the baseball and softball seasons very much in the thick of things, softball headed to the postseason with the NCAA tournament, baseball in a massively big week for the Ducks here uh, and for Really huge games this week, starting tonight against Gonzaga and then the home series against Stanford this weekend. This edition of the podcast will be focused on the spring sports on the diamond. And then, yes, we will do uh, a bit of a post-spring offense breakdown. We'll do a post-spring defense breakdown and the like uh, in the weeks ahead. But for baseball and softball, again, certainly a very big week coming up for both the Oregon softball and baseball teams we'll start with softball and let's address first and foremost the most obvious a very controversial seating by the ncaa selection committee for oregon to be the only team in the top 15 of rpi adjusted rpi and strength of schedule not to receive a national seed and with that uh, the opportunity to host an ncaa regional stood out uh, in rather sharp contrast uh, even to some of the teams who did get the opportunity to host the regional as a national seed, or for that matter, a team like Georgia, who gets to host a regional because it was one of the 20 predetermined sites uh, earlier in the month of April. But uh, Duke was not selected as one of those sites uh, at the time, and as a result, uh, Duke is the national seed, but Georgia is the regional host of that site. Now, I had North Dakota State Athletic Director and chair of the NCAA uh, Softball Selection Committee, Matt Larson, on my radio show on Monday. So we'll go over some of his comments, and I have a story on OregonLive.com this morning that you can check out to see all his various comments. But we'll review it, review the data, review the metrics, and really discuss uh, in detail here what went into it. Uh, And as I said to Matt on the show, look, 
You're never going to make everybody happy. I understand that. Uh, but there are clearly some issues here for the Pac-12 and especially for Oregon's purposes when it comes to the seating. And some of this is very, very hard to understand the thought process here because depending on which metric you look at or which set of metrics you look at, uh, you would have to be viewing Oregon in a terribly unfavorable light to justify uh, not having them as one of the top 16 seeds. And as full disclosure, in my in my own view, opinion, and assessment, entering uh, the final weekend of the season, even after uh, Oregon swept Cal, of course, is uh, basically the last place team in the Pac-12, I thought that they had secured a top 16 seed given their RPI was 12th, their adjusted RPI was 15th, their strength of schedule was 9th, that they had two wins uh, in six meetings with UCLA, who was number one in RPI, who they'd received the number three overall seed, and split a weekend series with Arizona, took one of four against Arizona State, thought as a whole that while there were certainly a good number of teams who had more compelling resumes and deserved to be in the top eight, I didn't think the Ducks would get a top eight seed. Uh, as I had tweeted out throughout the weekend, and I said, you know, if there's even just a 2% chance, but there's certain things that may have improved their odds of such a thing. Sure, but realistically, there were at least eight teams who were ahead of Oregon from a seeding standpoint, and there was not a compelling case really to be had for the Ducks to get a top eight, which would not only mean hosting a regional, but also being in line potentially to host a super regional. If you viewed Oregon in the absolute most favorable light imaginable, you could have made an argument. But as I say, when you really compared a lot of the metrics to many of the teams who also got there, it was going to be a very difficult, if not impossible, case to make. So having said that, it really came down to, all right, but do they have a top 16 resume? And by, like I say, the most uh, overwhelming data, and the top metrics that you go by in terms of uh, RPI, adjusted RPI, strength of schedule, and yes, even top 25 and top 50 wins, yeah, the, they certainly did uh, in totality. So when Oregon did not get a top 16 seed and was a number two seed at 12th seeded Texas, which adds another layer to it, which we'll get to that in a moment, but dealing just with the seeding part of the process for the for the moment here that was quite surprising to say the least now again in chatting with Matt Larson about and I as I said to him I simply do not understand how this came to be and which metrics ultimately were the differentiating factors here because what it really boils down to was the difference between Oregon and Kentucky and when you compare their two resumes side by side while there are certainly some data points that favor Kentucky, when you look at the totality of the resume, quite honestly, I, you know, again, just objectively looking at it, don't believe that Kentucky was the better team on paper. You know, again, they didn't play on the field, obviously. They don't have common opponents. So there's no way of knowing this definitively. But when you look at certain data, particularly the most overarching RPI, adjusted RPI and strength of schedule, and even non-conference strength of schedule, those were all data points that favored Oregon. And that's where, I, like I say, in comparing the two teams, 
and that's really what it boiled down to. The team in the top 15, top 16 who did not get a regional was Oregon. The team outside those numbers, slightly, who did get a regional was Kentucky, who got the 15 overall seed. Now let's break down and review their resumes here for uh, for those who haven't gone through all the you know team sheets and look at the NCAA site for all this data. The bottom line is Kentucky's top 50 record was 14 and 13, which basically is to say they basically went 14 and 13 in the SEC for the most part, almost the entirety. Uh, they went seven and 10 against top 25 opponents and five and eight against the top 10, including a split, which was a series win over Alabama and a lost Alabama in the SEC tournament. So a season split with Alabama, who of course received the number three national seed and had a unbelievable resume uh, from a uh, top 25 and top 50 win standpoint. Having said that, Kentucky's worst loss came in extra innings in non-conference play to Western Kentucky, who was 47th in RPI. They also made the field. But they had a lower strength of schedule, and not just lower than Oregon, who, again, was ninth in strength of schedule. Not just lower by a few notches. Lower by 9 versus 31. A non-conference strength of schedule for the Ducks, which was 136th, which, like I say, when you want to find a data point that really goes against Oregon, certainly the non-conference strength of schedule this year due to all the kinds of restrictions on travel and budgets and you name it, made it a bit of a challenge. Kentucky, even with that game with Western Kentucky, their non-conference strength of schedule was 177. They played 19 games against teams outside the top 100 in RPI. Well, that's a lot. That's a ton. And yeah, Oregon also played 11 of those games. And frankly, a good number of teams in the top 15 played 8, 10. Tennessee played 17 of those games. Duke played 17 of those games. So they're not alone in that regard. But like I say, in terms of we want to make it about a strength of schedule argument, yes, did Kentucky play in the SEC and top to bottom? We're not going to go on and on and on about the relative strength of the SEC versus the Pac-12, the data and the math is what it is, folks. Unfortunately for Pac-12 fans, this is another sport that while the Pac-12 is excellent at it, the SEC is as well. And yeah, by virtue of their non-conference scheduling and how good their teams are, the worst team in the SEC, South Carolina, who missed the tournament, was 50th in RPI. Well, the three worst teams in the Pac-12, Oregon State, Cal, and Utah, were between 60 and 88 in RPI. And the average RPI of the non-conference schedule for the, or the, excuse me, the just average non-conference schedule uh, for Pac-12 teams was 20 spots behind the average non-conference schedule for SEC teams. So like I say, to a certain degree, the math is the math when comparing the conferences. But in terms of the conference schedule, yes, Kentucky played in a top-to-bottom, better league, so therefore it had a few more games. And again, had a split with a great team in Alabama. Well, Oregon's top 50 record was 10-14. and 14. Remember, this is compared to 14-13. and 13. This is not a massive difference. Is it a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ultimately, Kentucky has a winning record in that metric. Oregon does not. In the top 25, Kentucky is 7-10. and 10. 
Oregon is 6-12. and 12. Is that a massive difference? Not really. Is it slightly more favorable to Kentucky? Of course. But not by a ton. And the top 10, which boil down to just UCLA for Oregon's purposes, UCLA gets the number three national seed, or excuse me, the number two national seed, but they were the number one team in RPI. So you're kind of splitting hairs between Oregon and Kentucky's resumes, Oregon and Kentucky's opponents, and evaluating some of these points. Oregon's worst loss came at Oregon State, but Oregon also beat Oregon State four times. And as I say, it's strength of schedule, non-conference strength of schedule, was stronger than that of Kentucky. And if we're getting into non-conference opponents, Oregon had two wins against Fresno State, who was 46th in RPI and made the tournament. Kentucky did not have a non-conference win over a team of that caliber. So for all the data points that could be pointed out to say, oh, well, Kentucky has a slightly favorable spot here, and hey, look at their top 10 record because, hey, they may have lost a series at Florida. They may have lost a series to LSU. They may have lost a series to Tennessee. And they split with Georgia on the season, though it was a regular season series loss and a win in the SEC tournament. And they even had a series loss to Auburn, who, yes, makes the tournament, but was one of the worst teams in the league. One of the top 30 teams in RPI. But nevertheless, Having said that, that's the SEC schedule, which just makes up their entire top 50 resume outside of a loss in extra innings to Western Kentucky. Well, like I say, look at Oregon's and you say, well, if we want to make it about non-conference strength of schedule or scheduling in general, well, Oregon played in the Pac-12, who was awfully competitive as well, in non-conference in terms of top 50 opponents, you're dealing with an extra inning loss for Kentucky and two wins for Oregon. How do you try to weigh what is the best win in non-conference, which favors Oregon, the worst loss, which barely favors Kentucky, and like I say, Oregon more than avenged it uh, in terms of against Oregon State on the season in totality. And let's not forget, as I mentioned, for all the points that go in Kentucky's favor, They played 19 games against teams outside the top 100 in RPI, which from a data point evaluation standpoint is basically useless and why their non-conference strength of schedule was 177th in a normal year where travel restrictions aren't there and and teams are so limited in terms of non-conference scheduling all over the country. A team with a non-conference strength of schedule of 177 basically stands no chance of hosting a regional. It would, it would never happen. A team who has 19 games of, of that ilk on its resume. So yes, is it coming down to the finest of data points and splitting hairs? Absolutely. No question about it. Do I, in my heart of hearts, believe that Oregon was the better team on paper by the largest uh, data sets and most compelling arguments, and not for the not only to mention that Oregon finished third in the Pac-12, and Kentucky obviously did not finish third in the SEC, although, yes, the SEC is definitely a better league right now. There's no question about it. There isn't an argument to be had there. But in judging and evaluating, again, the totality 
of their resumes. Look, if you put, I don't care how many people in a room, whether it's a selection committee of five or eight people, or you do a poll across college softball, where clearly Oregon was the higher-ranked team for most all the season, you're going to get different opinions on it. Unfortunately for the Ducks, these different opinions not only go against them in terms of a seeding standpoint, but then coupled with the bracketing principles for the NCAA for softball, it then leads to the Ducks not only not getting a top 16 seed, but then getting bumped considerably further down in terms of who they're actually paired with. And that's by virtue of, well, Washington gets the 16. Why are they the 16 when they finish second in the Pac-12? Comfortably so. And Arizona and Arizona State, who finished behind both Washington and Oregon in the Pac-12 standings, get higher seeds? Well, there, the committee says, and Matt, um, again, Matt Larson, the North Dakota State AD and the chair of the selection committee says, well, you know, look at non-conference schedules. Those were teams who scheduled some non-conference games. Absolutely true. Arizona played Florida State and UCF in non-conference play all on a trip back in March. Went 1-2 and two against Florida State, lost to UCF. And Arizona manages to get the 11 seed. Now, by their RPI, it's still justified. Not knocking Arizona by any stretch of the imagination. Arizona State gets the 15 seed. They lost to number one Oklahoma, beat Iowa State, split with Baylor. All of those teams made the tournament. Obviously, Oklahoma, the number one team in the country. But Arizona State had a head-to-head series win over Arizona. Was their RPI slightly behind? Yeah. By RPI, both of those seeds are somewhat justified. On the other hand, it basically comes down to what the committee is saying is those four non-conference games for Arizona and Arizona State, all of which, again, are in the top 50 and all against teams who made the tournament, including in the case of Arizona-Florida State, a national seed like themselves, was the difference between putting Arizona and Arizona State ahead of Washington, who gets the 16, because Washington didn't have a top 50 non-conference opponent, and Oregon, who finished third in the Pac-12, who had one top 50 non-conference opponent in Fresno State, who happened to be the only top 50 non-Pac-12 team in the Pacific or Mountain time zones for anyone in the league to schedule this season. And that's really gets back to the point of, all right, even in evaluating these various data points, which is what the committee has to do in seeding a tournament and for any of these sports. And again, it's a thankless job, and I'm not saying this is easy. But in this year, amid the pandemic, amid travel restrictions, amid uh, COVID regulations, budgetary constraints on uh, scheduling and travel, there were very, very finite options for anyone in the Pac-12, especially where you get more remote in the Pacific Northwest compared to Arizona or Arizona State, because basically all the teams that I mentioned who they play uh, were either out of the Big 12 and geographically not all that far, or Arizona was willing to make the trip out to Florida, be that as it may. 
but you weren't going to get teams outside of the Pacific or Mountain time zones to travel to Oregon or Washington. It just wasn't going to happen unless it was going to be a three-game non-conference weekend series. Short of that, you weren't going to get a team to do that. Well, remember, folks, ordinarily when you construct the non-conference schedule in late February and early March in a normal year, Washington and Oregon are teams who play their non-conference games at neutral sites because they can't guarantee that the weather's going to be any good. So they can't possibly line up an opponent to play in Eugene or in Seattle in March because they're worried that it's going to rain out. And who would agree to play the game because they, they can't run the risk that they lose the games against the, you know, a premier opponent? And then you say, all right, well, then go play somebody on the road. Easier said than done. Easier said than done in the best of years, but especially difficult this year, again, due to all the restrictions, regulations, and the like. So what it really comes back to is not only can you make arguments about various data points, but you can also make the arguments of, all right, but what were these teams exactly supposed to do to avoid getting to Selection Sunday in the end of a softball season where they played well, and it seems like they get penalized for things that somewhat are out of their control. Now, of course, the thing that ends all arguments when it comes to seeding, regardless of sport, football, basketball, you name it, softball, baseball, anything, is, well, if you win all your games, whoever you are, probably going to be okay. So, end of the day, literally for everybody, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, Arizona, whoever we're talking about, very easy argument. You could have just won your conference games and more of them, and you don't have to get to this point at all. To be sure, absolutely. But nothing is that easy. Sooner or later, teams lose, and teams have to be seeded with losses, and things have to be determined that are on the margins. Now, again, you get the criteria. You get a little bit by way of context and explanation from Matt Larson into some of the criteria and what the thought process is. But whether you agree or not is up to you. Ultimately, again, to me, I don't believe that Oregon deserved not to be hosting a regional. And then in the long run of it, because Washington is the 16, because Arizona State is the 15, and the bracketing principles call for trying to avoid conference rematches as best as possible for the selection committee, well, that knocks out pairing them with 16 Washington. It knocks out pairing them with 15 Arizona State. Now we get to Kentucky. Well, they're 14, and that's a bit of a hike. Duke is the 13, but again, they got paired geographically with Georgia, and Georgia, Michigan, and Oregon were the teams under consideration to host the regional that Duke was the national seed for, according to Matt Larson. But because of the geographical preference, which is one of the uh, bracketing principles as well, that's how Georgia ends up hosting that regional because of the predetermined site situation this year due to the pandemic. And that leaves Michigan to go out to Washington. That leaves Arizona State hosting the teams that it gets. Like I say, now you've got a 14 seed in Kentucky, and you've got a 12 seed in Texas. If you go by the true S curve, being paired with the 12 seed in Texas means Oregon 
is the number 21 team. There is no way imaginable, no metric you can come up with to make the argument that not only that the Ducks are not in the top 16, but that they're all the way down at 21. You simply cannot come up with that. I mean, there's there's no objective measure that would, would say that. And Matt Larson, again, the selection committee chair, said, no, they did not follow the true S-curve for that, nor do they have to. But it was more about the bracketing principles, as I just outlined, that basically says, all right, well, you're going to try and make it as geographically beneficial as possible, which meant that Oregon gets sent to Texas. And obviously, yes, it is a a compelling storyline in this matchup between Oregon and Texas. Yes. And Oregon's resume actually compares quite favorably to Texas, who doesn't exactly get the best side of this equation either. You know, quite honestly, while it makes for a, a, it may make for fun for observers and fans and the like, but Texas fans shouldn't exactly be too thrilled about this matchup either because this is not exactly, you know, the most advantageous position for Texas to be in compared to who they could have, would have, should have. Uh, been hosting in terms of if you're talking Oregon should be a top 16 well then if you're Texas you're saying well then we should be getting the two the true 21 and we ain't getting the true 21 that just didn't happen so be that as it all may yes there's the obvious matchup between uh, former Oregon coach Mike White former players Lauren Burke Mary Iacopo and Shannon Rhodes up against Melissa Lombardi Haley Cruz and Shea Bowden in particular and again, is it compelling? Will it be entertaining if these matchups arise? Sure. I have no doubt that from a television viewing standpoint uh, and as a storyline for ESPN, and look, I will, we'll write about it, obviously. There's no way to avoid it. But at the same time, is it terribly just for the coaches, players, families involved? Uh, again, you can be the judge there about what's either right, wrong, or otherwise about it in terms of when it's a, a forced pairing uh, under the circumstances, as opposed to if they had both made it to Oklahoma City, well, they won their way there, and that's the way it goes. But when it's a pairing uh, by choice, albeit, yes, due in part to some bracketing principles from the NCAA's you know handbook and the like, you may be able to understand how you got there. It doesn't mean you have to like that it happened in the end. So... Again, it will be a, certainly a very entertaining uh, matchup should it occur over the weekend. We'll have plenty of coverage of it on OregonLive.com. Uh, but not to be the bearer of bad news uh, beyond the the obvious and the seating standpoint, which, again, you can check out the entire story uh, on Oregon Live as well. But if you look at the weather forecast for this weekend in Austin, Texas, not very good. In fact, it's pretty awful. At the moment. Now, again, it's just a forecast. Doesn't mean that it's absolutely going to be right. But the forecast is not good for the weekend. Just as a reminder, because I realize that this is not a process that uh, people are usually uh, front of mind for, for most folks and most fans. Here is the rules and guidelines when it comes to weather in the postseason and how it may impact games for the NCAA softball tournament if weather arises. If no games can be played, just like what happened in women's golf, and we saw that occur, if no games can be played, 
then it goes automatically to seeding. And the highest remaining seed is who advances to the Super Regional. Obviously not what anybody wants. They have a deadline to complete the regional round or the super regional round by that matter, but we're dealing with the regional round right now. The regional is scheduled for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There is wiggle room into the end of Monday to get in as many games as possible. If it cannot be completed by the end of Monday, in in totality or however many games are completed, here is the breakdown. If either zero game, if no games are played at all, or one game is played, and the first game to be played is uh, Texas as the host uh, school and host uh, team involved, they get to play in the first game, and obviously a very advantageous matchup with uh, St. Francis of Pennsylvania. If either no games are played or one game is played, the highest seed, regardless win or loss, the highest seed advances to the Super Regional. If two games are played, meaning that Texas would play St. Francis of Pennsylvania, Oregon would play Texas State, if those two games are played and only those two games are played, the highest undefeated seed advances, which on paper would favor Texas as, again, the host school as long as they're not upset uh, in what would be a monumental upset. That is what would occur. Now, if they were and Oregon was undefeated, they would be the highest undefeated seed remaining in that regional. Where it gets compelling and could come into play if the weather forecast holds either entirely through the weekend or it's intermittent and some games are able to get played and others get delayed until the following day or what have you, is if three games, three, four, or five, for that matter, games are played, then the highest undefeated seed, just as if two games are played, the highest undefeated seed advances. Why is three games critical? Because if both Texas and Oregon win their opening games, they play each other to open up the second day of play. The winner of that game is in the driver's seat in the event of inclement weather that could postpone or completely cancel further competition. Now, again, nobody hopes for this. Nobody wants this, no matter who you are, no matter what the regional, no matter what the sport, you want it to be determined on the field. But I lay this out there in terms of these are the rules and what the uh, rule book calls for because if you look at the weather forecast, as I say, for Austin this weekend, it is not good. There is thunderstorms in in the forecast. Each and every day, starting today, all the way through Sunday. Sunday, it has the lowest probability, but each and every day is at least 80% plus chance of thunderstorms every single day. So something to keep an eye on. Obviously, we'll keep you posted on what goes on with the regional in Austin throughout the course of the week and the weekend. That gives us a nice recap of all things softball-related at this point, heading into the Austin Regional for Oregon, and now we shift gears to Oregon baseball. An absolutely enormous week for Oregon baseball at PK Park as the Ducks 
back in the top 10 in the majority of the polls following the sweep of Utah, though they dropped in the RPI due to that sweep because Utah is so far and away uh, the lowest team in RPI in the Pac-12. But be that as it may, there's no apologizing for uh, conference wins and conference sweep, no less. So the Ducks are atop the Pac-12 standings. They have a massive, massive week of games starting Tuesday night against Gonzaga at 6 o'clock at PK Park. The highest-ranked team in terms of RPI that Oregon will host this season. Now, depending on how the final week or so, this week, two weeks of the season goes, that may change by Selection Monday. Uh, there's a possibility that one or two of the Pac-12 teams slide up a few pegs and that Gonzaga slides back a few. But be that as it may, right now, Oregon is 15 in RPI. Gonzaga is 17. This is, on paper, one of the most important games of Oregon's season. Massively big. There's no overselling it. Huge game. Absolutely huge game. Getting a win of this magnitude for either program, it's huge for Gonzaga's purposes as well. Both teams are headed to the NCAA tournament. Both teams under consideration to host the regional. Both teams potentially in contention to host a super regional. Enormously big game for both teams. Gonzaga is a very talented team. Great roster. Six hitters hitting uh, 297 or basically 300 plus. Uh, multiple pitchers who have thrown in the midweek for them. Chad with Mark Wazikowski earlier this week. Uh, he wouldn't say who the starter for the Ducks would be, but it most likely will be Peyton Fuller. It's been a couple of weeks since we last saw him. He came back from injury in late April. He made his first uh, start in about two months at that point. And should he get the nod tonight, uh, he has built up uh, his arm strength and uh, his workload at this point to where he can go five-plus innings, uh, Waz said. So while he wouldn't commit to Fuller being the guy, they're not going to mess with their weekend rotation. So it stands to reason that Fuller was the most likely candidate uh, to get the start on the mound tonight for the Ducks, who, again, are coming off a tre- in every category, coming off a tremendous weekend at Utah. But, again, this is a very, very big uh, game tonight and a different caliber of opponent in Gonzaga uh, for the Ducks tonight compared to what Utah was. To give an early look ahead to the series with Stanford on the weekend, two of the top three teams in the Pac-12, much is going to be decided in the Pac-12 race for the conference title between Oregon and Stanford this weekend could very well decide who ends up winning the league. It's not going to be entirely up to those two teams and only those two teams because Arizona is still in the thick of things. Oregon State's still alive. Arizona State's still alive. There's lots of, you know, even though there's only two weekends left, there are just a good number of games that are incredibly important all across the league to be played. But in terms of uh, the series at the top of the list, by far this weekend, it is Oregon and Stanford. This is, a, again, when you talk about Big series. This is the biggest week of the season for Oregon. Now, depending on how it unfurls, we could be saying the same thing a week from now when they go to Cal because if they're still in contention to uh, land and secure a Pac-12 regular season title, well, then that becomes the biggest week for Oregon baseball. But right now, especially from a home game standpoint, there is really no argument to be had for the season. I know obviously the Oregon State series is huge or rivalry series is huge, all these things, sure. But in terms of on paper and the metrics and what it means to the standings and the like, the game with Gonzaga 
tonight is enormous, and the series with Stanford is massive, and massive for both sides. Not ju- it's not just one of these. Well, it means a lot to Oregon, and that's great. Uh, and if they win, it's kind of a not just a foregone conclusion necessarily, but it's a bit of a mismatch on paper. No, these are really evenly matched teams in both cases. Both Gonzaga and Stanford have a ton to play for as well. Both are headed for the postseason. Both are looking to host regionals. Both could be in alive for super regionals. These are all really competitive baseball teams. So it should be a lot of fun at PK Park. Again, starting tonight and throughout the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, as the Ducks host Stanford as well. We will come back and chat with you and recap uh, the weekend that is between softball going to Texas to take on uh, tech, starting with Texas State and potentially the Longhorns as well. And then, obviously, how the week goes for Oregon baseball. We'll see you next week.